You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Before moving to Miami, uh, my family and I lived in Indianapolis. And in Indianapolis, I had quite a few contacts with different musicians. Because of that, I would often gig playing different concerts and whatever when they needed a piano player. One of these regular ones was a private school that was downtown, and they had a pretty high-level music group. Um, They would do choirs, and they'd hire a bunch of orchestra players that would come in and put on these... I think, pretty high-level productions. Their biggest one was the Christmas one. And one year, we were doing rehearsals for the Christmas concert, and we were excited because this year we were going to have a live bagpipe player. Yeah, that's not like a common thing. You don't have one of those sitting in your closet. So we were excited to hear this, but the bagpipe player, they were not available until the final rehearsal. The final rehearsal, like the day of, basically sound check, right before you do the real deal. So rehearsals went well, then it was the day of, everybody shows up, probably have 20 to 25 musicians, you have percussion, you have a string section, there was horns and everything else. And the bagpipe player shows up. He starts warming up. I don't know if you've ever heard one in real life, usually just hear them in movies or whatever, they are crazy loud. But he's warming up, he's getting his bagpipe ready, and then the song that we're going to play with him, the introduction is just him playing by himself. It's a bagpipe solo, and then the rest of the orchestra comes in and joins him. So he starts the song, he's playing through with his drone. I don't remember if he was wearing a kilt or not, he might have been. (laughs) And it's super cool. And then it comes to the part where everybody else comes in. And we all come in with him, and it was immediately apparent to everyone that something was not right. We shut everything down, and then we tried to figure out what was going on. Well, the bagpipe player had been given music in a different key. And when everybody else came in, it was not okay. It sounded horrible. It was music that no one was going to enjoy. Bagpipe is already like kind of a unique instrument. And then when you have clashing dissonance like that, it was horrible. But it didn't matter what that bagpipe player did. It didn't matter how skilled he was. It didn't matter how good his technique was. Because his source code, his input was wrong, his output was not going to change. The only thing that was going to fix our music was to change the key of what he was trying to read. Our worship is the same. Worship is what I wanna talk with you about this morning. Our worship, the output of it, whether it is acceptable and pleasing to God or not, is directly influenced by what it is motivated by. That source code, that input that goes into our worship directly affects our ability to worship God correctly. As one of the pastors here on staff, and as music is one of my responsibilities, honestly, when I get teaching opportunities, I try to stay away from worship because that's just kind of expected. I'm gonna talk about that music or worship or something related. So I like to take passages that I feel like I don't have a real good handle on so that I can wrestle through the text, through sermon preparation, and then hopefully share with you guys. It's self-serving, yes, but I enjoy it. 
But as I was wrestling through the text for today, it became more and more apparent as I, as I continued to study that worship was one of the main themes that was coming out of the passage. And when we talk about God's word, we never want to read a different theme into the passage. Like, I wanna talk about this, so I'm gonna figure out a way to talk about what I wanna talk about. We take the passage, and whatever that passage is teaching us, that's what we wanna pull out of it. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. Talking about worship, I wanna start by giving you a definition, then we'll get into our passage. The definition of worship is this. Worship is the odd response to the saving acts and praiseworthy character of God. You should have it all up on the screen for you. I'm gonna read that again. Worship is the odd response to the saving acts and praiseworthy character of God. You'll notice what that definition does not include. It does not say anything about music. It does not say anything about musical styles. It does not say anything about auditorium design. It does not say anything about raising hands. It does not say anything about standing up or dancing or clapping or any of that. While music and those expressions are very much part of worship, they are a small subcategory of a much larger umbrella of worship. So when we use the term worship, and as I use the word, term worship today, do not automatically go to thinking about music. This is a much broader term that I'd like to talk about this morning. It involves the way that we do everything in our lives. We can worship through the words that we use. We worship through our relationships. We worship through our attitudes. We worship through the way we spend our time. We worship through the way we spend our money. There are many, many ways that we can worship. Included under that are sacrifices. Particularly in the Old Testament, we find animal sacrifices. Those are also under the category of worship. And that is the particular mode, the specific mode of worship that I want us to look at specifically this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to open to Genesis chapter four. Genesis chapter four. For those maybe not as familiar with your Bible as completely fine, it's the first book in the Bible. This is gonna be an easy Sunday for you. First book in the Bible, flip to it. We're gonna be in chapter four. We're gonna read verses one through seven. Genesis chapter four, verses one through seven. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Verse six, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The first point that I would like to look at from this passage is that God regards worship by faith. God regards worship by faith. When we are studying the Bible, there are oftentimes passages that we'll come to that don't immediately seem clear to us. We have questions, we have follow-up questions. Why is this? Where's the motivation behind this? What's going on here? 
And that's what we find here in Genesis chapter four, at least I personally do. Abel's offering, God had regard for it. Why? Was it because of what he gave? Was it because of how he gave, when he gave? I'd like more information here. Whenever you're studying the Bible, the first place you want to go to interpret scripture is scripture itself. The reason for this is that there is no higher authority than the word itself. Any other resources that we go to to interpret the Bible for us are lesser than. Helpful at times, absolutely, but lesser than the authority of the Bible. So we go to our favorite preachers, we go to study Bibles, we go to commentaries, those are helpful. But first and foremost, you want to go to the Bible to interpret itself whenever you have questions about it. And that's what we're gonna do here this morning. I want to look at why was Abel's sacrifice accepted? So while we've started in Genesis, flip if you can with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we start at the beginning. Again, if you're new to your Bible, this is gonna to be towards the end of your Bible. You're gonna to flip to the other end. There's a book called Hebrews. It's not the very last one, but it's close to there. Chapter 11 and verse four. It's going to shine some light on this for us. Hebrews 11:4 says this, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. Again, let me read that. The first two words are incredibly important. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. Abel's sacrifice was given in faith. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us. His faith made his sacrifice acceptable. It was not the merit, it was not how good his sacrifice was, it was not the timing of it, it had nothing to do with Abel himself. Abel's sacrifice was a response to the recognition of his need for God to provide salvation for him, not an attempt at self-salvation. It was not the quality of his sacrifice. It was his faith in the God that he was sacrificing to. To help us maybe tease us out a little bit more, there's a quote on the screen that I want you to read along with me. People respond differently to the mystery and majesty of God. On the one hand, when there is no appreciation of the mystery and majesty, people are indifferent, curious perhaps, and at times irritated. But the positive reaction of wonder and reverence, which is the response of faith, turns into acts of worship. For the revelation moves from evoking a sense of fear and astonishment to one of self-abasement and adoration. Isaiah's response was, woe to me, I am ruined. Isaiah's response he's talking about is of course the classic response we find in Isaiah chapter six when Isaiah finds himself in the throne room of God, exposed to the holiness of God, and he doesn't respond, wow, this is pretty and cool. Isaiah sees the greatness of God, the holiness of God, the supremacy of God, supremacy of God. And conversely, he also understands who he is in light of who God is. And he says, woe to me, I am undone. Abel responded in faith. His sacrifice was a response. He was not trying to earn anything with God. It was because he knew who God was and his faith in God caused him to respond with the sacrifice that he responded with. And because of that, that is what made his sacrifice acceptable to God. Abel's faith was a forward-facing faith. He didn't know anything about Jesus. In Genesis chapter three, we have what is commonly referred to as the proto-evangelium, the first 
glimpse of the gospel that we have. Where after the fall, after Adam and Eve's sin, sin comes into the world, now there's going to be death and destruction and decay. God, while he's explaining these consequences, also gives them hope. And he promises that there will be a savior. There will be a snake crusher. Through the seed of the woman, he would provide a savior. At the very beginning, God promises this. And this is what Abel is looking forward to. He doesn't know how it's going to happen. Us here in 2023, we have the advantage of having the completed revelation of God. We have our Bibles. We know how God completed that. So instead of a forward-facing faith like Abel's, ours is a rear-facing faith. It's in Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is how God provided salvation to his people. So while our faith faces a different direction, the object of our faith is exactly the same, God and his character and his worthiness and his salvation that he supplied for his people. I want us to take a minute and break down what does worshiping by faith look like for us? What does worshiping by faith look like? It starts with a recognition of our need before God. We see God as holy, we see him as perfect, and we see that we do not measure up, that we are inferior, that we are lacking, and that we need God. Psalm 53 tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one, and I'm sorry, but that includes you as well. This recognition of a need before God then leads to a humility that we have. We recognize our station before God and we don't respond in pride. When we see God for who he truly is, there's only one response that we can have and that is humility. God, I don't measure up to you. I need you. And this humility then leads into a response. That's the worship that we see here in Genesis chapter four that we see here in Abel. For us, because we know of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us, this response for us when we immediately become Christians to the recognition of God is that the things that we were sacrificing for, the things that we were worshiping, the sin, that is less than. There's nothing that compares with God and his glory now. So we turn from our sin and now, God, I worship you because you are worthy. More worthy than anything else that I've ever found before and more worthy than anything that I will be able to find. And we put our faith in his promises for who he is and what he has provided. That is what it looks like to worship by faith. Again, just to hammer this home, sacrifice or worship is a response to the Savior, not a replacement for the Savior. Now, some of you may be sitting here and thinking, well, I don't know if I agree with you. I think Abel's sacrifice was accepted because he gave a lamb and Cain didn't. Because he gave the firstborn of his flock, he gave the fat portion, sounds like he did a good job. Is not that what God had regard for? Hebrews 10 is very clear that animal sacrifices do nothing to cover our sin. They cannot pay for our sin. Human sacrifices for all time were merely a symbol pointing forward to the future savior, Jesus Christ, that would be given. Abel gave his best because of his understanding of who God was. He was not trying to earn favor with God. He was recognizing the greatness of God and then his response, his worshipful response to who God was, was that he wanted to give his best. Abel was a shepherd. To give his firstborn would show his need for God. To give the fat portions, the best tasting parts, were to show that he wanted to give his best. It was a recognition of God's worthiness, and that is why Abel gave what he gave. 
the fat portions and the meat that I remember when I was a kid reading these and that would sound weird. But then I went to Japan and I had Wagyu beef. It's super marbled and has like a ton of fat in there. Those are, I promise you, the best parts. But Abel was giving up his best out of a response, not trying to get something out of God. Do you see how this should fundamentally change the way that we look at worship? It's not that we have to worship God to earn favor with him. We get to worship God because of what he has accomplished for us. Worship for Christians should be a natural response. This should not be coerced, it should not feel forced. We see God in his greatness and we can't help ourselves but to respond and worship to him. The New Testament talks about being a cheerful giver. In that context, it's specifically talking about monies that we give but I think we can extrapolate the principle there a little bit. God loves a cheerful giver. And it could be for you that you've had difficulty being a cheerful giver, a cheerful worshiper. How do you correct for that? It's like, I really need to change my attitude. I really need to change how I feel about this. I'm gonna be cheerful. I'm gonna give this money cheerfully. I have two kids, so I've seen a lot of kids' movies, children's movies. I don't know if you've seen Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, but there's a police officer who's like macho. He reminds me of Mr. T from the A-Team, if any of you are old enough to remember that. But he's like a man's man, super strong, go-getter, type A, leader. He's basically Elias Navarro in cartoon form. <laughs> but there's one time in the movie where something very emotional happens, and the police officer has this tear that starts dripping down his cheek. And he catches himself, he's like, get back in there, tear, and he sucks it back into his eye. <laughs> Our emotions usually don't work like that. We, don't, we can't control them at a whim. But friends, if you're not feeling cheerful about giving, if you're not feeling cheerful about worship, if worship does not come naturally to you as a Christian, it's not to buckle down, it's not to white-knuckle it, it's not to figure it out and push harder. You go back to the gospel. You go back to the gospel and you stare at your God and his greatness and his worthiness, and you look at the gospel, what he's done for you, and that is what changes your emotions, that is what changes your heart. That is what causes you to respond in worship. And if you are struggling to worship your God, we're all sinners, we do. I'm not saying that you're broken or strange if that is your reality, it's the reality for all of us. But go back and remind yourself of who it is that you're worshiping and why you're worshiping him. That will fix your attitude. This should feel freeing, it should feel like a weight lifted. We're free to worship now. We're not trapped trying to earn something from our God. It's just a response, that's what our worship is. God has accomplished everything for us. Which brings us to point number two. First we said, God regards worship by faith. That was point number one. Point number two is this. God disregards or has no regard for quid pro quo worship. If you can read Genesis chapter four and verse five with me. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. He speaking of God. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Again, we don't have a lot of information here. Genesis 4 doesn't tell us exactly why Cain's worship was not regarded by God. But again, like we talked about earlier, we want scripture, whenever we can, we want scripture to interpret scripture for us. 
So if you could please turn in your Bibles again to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, again towards the end of your Bibles. It'll be on your screens for you if you don't have a Bible. Also, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we have a free one for you. In the back, you can get it after service. We'll provide that for you. We would love to put a Bible in your hands that you can read and learn from yourself. Just promise us that you'll read it. That's all we ask. 1 John 3, 12 says this. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Let's read it one more time. I'm a slow processor. If you're quick and you're like, come on, Chris, sorry. We're gonna read it again. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. This deeds that First John is talking about, the only recorded deeds that we have of Cain are his sacrifice that he gave. And we know it's not the murder that we was talking about. Spoiler alert, Cain murders Abel later. We'll talk about that later. But it was his deeds that came before. It's this worship, it's his sacrifice that, he's, that First John is talking about. They were evil. How do we know that? How can they tell that? Well, I think that we have a hint back in Genesis chapter four. So again, flip back with me to Genesis chapter four. So sorry. What was Cain's response? When he found out that God had no regard for his sacrifice, how did he respond? It says, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. Cain was very angry and his face fell. And I think by the Bible telling us that his deeds were evil, we can make the pretty safe assumption that this was not a righteous anger. This was a sinful anger. Those of you that were with us a few months back in our community groups when we were studying through the book called Gospel Treason, we were studying idolatry. And hopefully you guys remember what are good questions to ask yourself if you're trying to figure out if something in your life is an idol or not. You can tell if something is an idol or not by your willingness to sin if you can't have it or your sin if that thing is taken away from you. And I think that's what we're seeing here in Cain's life. We're seeing his response of anger is because he's not getting what he wants out of this transaction. What exactly it is he wants out of it, the Bible's not clear and I don't want to spend a lot of time speculating on what that was. But I think it is safe to say that Cain was looking to get something out of this transaction and he didn't get whatever it is that he wanted. Remember, we talked about in the first point what it looks like to worship in faith. We recognize our need before God, recognize our need before God, then there's a corresponding humility that comes out of that, that leads to humility, and that, that leads to response. This does not seem like a person that has seen God for who he is and is responding with humility and worship. This is a guy that is angry because he didn't get what he wanted. There's idolatry here, there's sin here. Cain's faith is not Cain's worship, excuse me, is not a faith worship like Abel's was. His is a quid pro quo worship, is what I'd like to call it. Quid pro quo is Latin for something for something. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I do this for you, you do this for me. God, I worship you in this way, and I get something out of it. That's the expectation. And it's at this point that I'd like us to take a minute and think about our own personal worship, our own personal sacrifice. For those of you that are non-Christians in the room, 
The most obvious way that we do this is, God, I'm gonna give this to you, and then you're gonna let me into heaven, right? We're good if I do this. If I'm a good enough person, if I give enough money, if I'm a good boss, if I'm a good employee, if I raise my kids right, if I vote the right way, whatever that is, God, we're, we're good. As long as I give enough, we're good. As Christians, the way that we would do this, there's many ways. But maybe it's in our business practices. God, I promise that I will be honest in all my dealings. I'm in Miami. There's people that are taking advantage of people right and left. That's just normal here, but I'm gonna be different. I'm gonna honor you in my business. I'm gonna be honest in all my dealings. And because of that, you're gonna make my business successful, right? It's gonna blow up, right? That's, that's only fair. I'm giving this to you. You give this back to me. Maybe our good morals. If I'm going to live right, God, you respond by giving me exactly what I want. If I protect myself, I don't, do the, I don't do the things that everybody else is doing, I'm a good person, then I'll get the spouse I want when I want. You'll bless my life in other ways. Sometimes we even do this in ministry. We look at our ministry and we're like, God, I'm willing to sacrifice my time and talents and efforts, and if I do that, you'll let me see fruit in my ministry, right? You're not going to let me, just put me out in the wilderness to die, I'm going to just, hoe my row for you forever and I see nothing out of it. You're gonna bless me, right? I'm gonna be able to see some fruit out of this. I'm not expecting everything but a little. These are all different ways that we can practice quid pro quo worship in our lives, but friends, God is not a gumball machine. We don't pop in a quarter, turn the crank, and get a treat out. To treat God as such reflects a lack of understanding of who God is and who we are. There's nothing that we can provide that God needs. There's nothing that we have that's a worthy enough sacrifice for God. And this brings us to our third point. We've talked about God regards worship by faith. Point number two is God disregards quid pro quo worship. And third is crouching sin, hidden consequences. Let's read verses six through seven in Genesis chapter four. Again, we'll see how old all of you are in the room. Genesis chapter four, verses six through seven. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. My wife Nozomi and I, we like to go on dates together. Uh, we try to do once a week. Sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't, but that's been our habit for a little while now. I remember going on one date that was a little extra, it was a little more than normal. When we were living in Indianapolis, found out about this place called the Exotic Feline Rescue Center. You drive like an hour and a half west of Indianapolis into the sticks, the boonies. You're in the forest of Indiana. Yes, there are trees in Indiana, it's not just cornfields. You get there, and it's just gravel driveways, you pull up to the shack, you buy your little ticket, and then you walk dirt paths with chain link fence on either side of you, and it's tigers, and lions, and leopards, and all kinds of other exotic felines that are just on the other side of the chain link. These are exotic cats that have been rescued from 
what was it, Tiger King? Tiger King type people. Literally like people in their New York City apartments will have a tiger that they smuggled in as a cub and then it grew and they couldn't handle it anymore. So the police would have to come and take the tiger and what are you gonna do with the tiger? They'd send it to places like this. It was really cool when you're at the zoo, I was actually at the zoo this Friday with my daughter. When you're at the zoo, you're pretty separated from the animals. At this place, it's chain link fence and then the animal. There's nothing else. And this isn't like heavy gauge chain link fence. It's just like regular, the stuff you have in your backyard. It's a little taller. It's just chain link fence between you and a thousand pound murder animal. So we're walking down these paths and uh, one of the workers there is giving kind of a tour. She's giving the uh, background of the animals, their names, where they came from, their habitat, whatever. But she's explaining this. We're walking past this one cage and there's a tiger. It's huge and it's like 10 feet on the other side of this fence and it's just pacing back and forth. And these enclosures are massive. Um, it's not like they're in 10 by 10, like they're, they're acres. But he's just going back and forth not a care in the world, completely indifferent to us and the handful of other people that were on our tour with us. The thing, one of the biggest things that freaked me out about it was how silent it was. You could not hear it at all. It was 10 feet away and walking, and again, 800 to 1,000 pounds, couldn't hear it at all. But it was acting like we didn't exist. And then the tour guide paused the tour and she said, watch this. And she turned around and she put her back up against the chain link fence. And as soon as she did that, that massive tiger who looked like we didn't exist immediately turned around and lunged at the chain link fence. It was the instinct of that animal. As soon as the back was turned, as soon as they saw a weakness, they went on the attack. Friends, this is how sin is in our lives. Sin is something that we see, but man, it looks like it doesn't care about us. It looks like it's indifferent. We don't exist to it. But as soon as you turn your back, it is there ready to pounce and to destroy you. That is what God is warning Cain about in these verses. I want us to zoom out and look at this. This phrase in these verses, it says, its desire is contrary to you. At the end of verse seven, talking about sin, its desires contrary to you. If that phrase sounds familiar to you, it's because it was just used in the previous chapter. If you wanna flip over in your Bibles to uh, chapter 16, the exact same phrase is used as God is again explaining the fall, the consequences of that. Genesis 3:16. to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. What God was explaining there in chapter three is that because sin has come into the world now, this relationship that I have designed, this husband-wife relationship that is supposed to be perfect where you come together and complete one another and in harmony you work together, different in roles but equal in value and worth, that's broken, that's gone now because of sin. There'll constantly be this competition between the two of you. What chapter four is doing is it's taking that sin that has happened in chapter three, the fall, that, that honestly sometimes feels like a scrubbed up, polished up Sunday school lesson, like, yeah, Adam and Eve, they took of the fruit, and then sin came into the world, and now we need to save Jesus Christ. Chapter four is saying, no, sin, if you didn't get it in chapter three, let me explain to you what exactly sin is going to do. 
It's not only going to mess up relationships between people, it's not only going to become more difficult, there's going to be enmity between brothers to the point where Cain is going to murder his own brother because of jealousy. There's going to be death because of this. There's going to be premature death because of this sin. Sin is coming to destroy. Not only do we see murder in chapter four, but then later on in chapter four, Cain willingly leaves the presence of God, abandoning any hope of a relationship with him. He leaves. This is the power of sin, and this is what chapter four is trying to show us. We must respond, we must see God for who he is, what he has provided, and respond in kind. We worship him because of that. We can choose to worship other things as Cain did, but it will destroy us in the end. Sin causes dissonance in our relationship with others, it causes dissonance in our relationship with God, and it will not stop. That sin will not stop. So I'd like you to ask you this. Where does your worship come from? Your sacrifice. Does it come from an overflow of your faith in him and what he has accomplished? Are you trying to gain something? Are you trying to earn something? Is God a gumball machine to you? Are you only trying to see what you can get out of it? Friends, everything that you are chasing, everything that you are chasing that is not God is less than. It is inferior. It will not pay off. In fact, it will destroy you. Are you chasing autonomy? There's no more freedom that you can have than freedom in Christ. Everything that is not freedom in Christ is slavery to sin. It's a comfort that you're looking for. Friends, there is no more reassuring and safe place than being in the arms of your Savior. Is it recognition? What greater recognition could you have than to be called a son or daughter of the living God? Friends, whatever it is that you're trying to sacrifice to make yourself right with God, God only accepts one sacrifice. There's only one thing that he accepts, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only thing that God accepts as a worthy sacrifice. And it is only when we come to an understanding of that, we recognize our need for that sacrifice and respond with repentance and faith to that and worship to him, is when that salvation can be ours. Anything else is less than. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.